We appreciate these uh, songs. Bobby leads us uh, in singing together, and as we have often said, we certainly do need to take very seriously our, our singing in worship to God, because it is a vital part of our worship to God. And as we have uh, said before as well, we need to sing scripturally just as we uh, teach and preach scripturally. And uh, if you notice, Bobby didn't lead the second stanza of, I know whom I have believed. I haven't talked to him about it, but I believe I know him well enough to know why he didn't leave it. It's not scriptural. The first phrase really isn't, is it? I know not how the Spirit moves convicting men of sin. Well, if we change it and sing, I know just how the Spirit moves convicting men of sin, that'd be all right. Because I do know just how the Spirit moves convicting men of sin through His Word, doesn't it? He is the all, it is the all-sufficient word through which he works. So I appreciate Bobby's uh, leaving that stanza out, and I think it's good to call attention at times to the fact that we do need to be very concerned about the scripturalness of our, of our song. Now, the last stanza of that, uh, of that song talks about, I do not know when he'll come, and I, we don't, or whether we'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. And... Uh, Walking the veil with him doesn't mean walking on earth with him, but whether or not we'll die before he comes or whether or not we'll be alive and meet him in the air. And that, too, is perfectly scriptural. So I appreciate uh, Bobby's conscientiousness and the job he does in leading our singing and our other men who participate in that very important part of our worship uh, as well. I mentioned this morning that tonight we were going to begin an expository series and I do uh, admittedly enjoy expository preaching uh, where we just simply go through a book and take a certain number of verses each time and, and cover those uh, verses and uh, uh, expose their meaning uh, in the uh, expository fashion. And we're going to begin to do that tonight with uh, the book of Colossians, as we mentioned this morning. Uh, one of the uh, prison uh, epistles uh, written from a Roman prison, the book of Colossians has been called the uh, most Christ-centered epistle in the New Testament. And it is in this uh, letter from the Apostle Paul that Paul exalts Christ as the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he does that for a specific reason. He does that to counter the false doctrine that threatened the church at Colossae. There was a threat to the church. It was, uh, it was called or has been called or designated the Colossian heresy. And uh, there have been various views as to uh, everything that was involved in the so-called Colossian heresy. But the antidote to the false teachings of, of men is seen in chapter 2 verse 9 of this epistle where Paul writes, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And a part of the teaching of this heresy was that, that deity and humanity could not ever be one, that they were diametrically opposed, and that uh, there could not have been uh, a creation by God of this uh, universe because that would bring deity in direct contact with, with material things. And so there had to be um, a series of, of uh, heavenly beings through whom ultimately the creation took place. That was a part of some of this false philosophy 
uh, and the worship of these angels was involved uh, in this uh, philosophy. There was also some, some Jewish teaching that was mixed in to, uh, to this teaching uh, that was false, which Paul uh, countered by exalting uh, the Christ. And as we go through this epistle, you'll see that that is obviously the case as Paul deals with the matter of the keeping of the Sabbath days and uh, the new moons and uh, these other things in which he says, do not let any man judge you in these things because you're not bound to keep these uh, particular uh, feast days. They belong to a law that has been nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14, he'll point that out. And so there was a mixture of Judaism and paganism and some uh, so-called Gnostic heresy involved in this Colossian heresy, and the Gnostics were those who claimed a, a special uh, knowledge, uh, a greater uh, knowledge. There was perhaps some asceticism involved where there was this removal of oneself from, uh, from the things of, uh, uh, of this life in terms of any kind of pleasurable involvement with the things of this life. Uh, some have said that perhaps the Essenes who dwelt near the Dead Sea uh, perhaps had an influence in this, uh, in this heresy. Certainly they were those who were ascetics in that they denied themselves uh, certain things, materially speaking, in order to hopefully uh, be uh, on a higher plane spiritually. But nonetheless, this was a heresy that was a mixture of various uh, philosophies, Jewish teaching, pagan teaching, Gnostic teaching, but it was all false. And the Colossian church was being threatened by this heresy. It was in an area in uh, the region of Phrygia which uh, uh, had a pretty substantial Jewish population, and so uh, we know that uh, the Jewish influence was strong there, and we see Paul countering some of that Jewish influence in this epistle as we go uh, through it. So this is probably the primary purpose for writing this epistle was to counter this false teaching. But it's interesting, as we have often said, that while Paul, by inspiration, could deal with a specific problem that existed at a specific time in the church at Colossae, as he does, he addresses for all time to come, in principle, some of the very same things that are very similar, at least, in terms of principle, in principle, he addresses those things, encounters those things that we face today. Some of the same types of error. What about the Sabbath, for example? What about the, uh, the contention that we need to be keeping the Sabbath? Paul will deal with that as he deals with the problem that existed then. He deals with the problem that we face today among those who would tell us that we are in error from meeting here today on the first day of the week. We should have been here yesterday. And so uh, that's the beauty of Scripture, is that it could deal with specific problems at specific times in specific places, but at the same time lay down principles for all time to come that are relevant and helpful to us and instructive to us as we face error in our day. Well, what about this city of Colossae? Uh, the ancient city of Colossae was destroyed by earthquake really about a year after uh, this epistle was written. Assuming this epistle was written around A.D. 62 to 63, the city of Colossae where the church was to whom Paul addressed this epistle, that city was destroyed by earthquake. It was a noted city of Phrygia in Asia Minor in the southern part of that province of Asia Minor about a hundred miles from the city of 
Ephesus. And of course, the Ephesian epistle is another of the uh, prison epistles uh, that Paul wrote around this same time. Of course, today, the area where Colossae was is now part of, of Turkey. And if you visit the seven churches of Asia, which I have never been privileged to do, but if you go to that area, that's where you will be, will be in the country of, of Turkey. Colossae was about a thousand miles from Rome by the route that ships had to follow in that day. It was near two other prominent cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis. Um, and uh, references to this are made in Colossians 2, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 13, and also in the Revelation letter, of course, in chapter 3 of Revelation, he deals with the church at Laodicea there, beginning in verse 14. The city of Colossae was built on a river called the Lycus uh, River. It was also known as the Little Meander River. There were mountains that surrounded this city, and it was important, very important in ancient times because it commanded the roads leading to these uh, mountain passes. So it was in a very strategic location from, the, from a military uh, standpoint. And it was also rich with volcanic soil, which made this area around Colossae very profitable for raising sheep. And uh, so there was some sheep raising that was going on uh, there. But in this region of Phrygia, where Colossae was located, you could find almost every imaginable pagan religion that you could think of. Everyone that was known you could find in this, uh, in this region. And the Syrian king, Antiochus the uh, Great, imported, and this is probably why we uh, read about the Jewish influence here and some of the false teaching there, but this king, the Syrian king, imported 2,000 Jewish families into Phrygia about 170 B.C., it is believed that about 50,000 Jews lived in this area in New Testament times. And so that may explain why the Colossian heresy definitely included some Jewish ideas. And, of course, it did, because we'll see that as we go through uh, the book. It may also explain why the nearby Galatians were also threatened by Judaism. And you remember when Paul wrote the Galatian letter... Uh, his primary content in that letter is dealing with the influence that was being exerted against those Galatian Christians by Judaizing teachers who were seeking to have them return to the law, keep circumcision, and so forth. So that may explain why we see so much Jewish influence in some of the false teaching that Paul will counter in this four-chapter epistle. Also, the gospel was probably first preached at Colossae by Paul and Silas, although it's not absolutely certain that that was the case. But, uh, and, and along with uh, them would have been Timothy. And if you read Acts 15, 40 and 41, you see them in this area. Also, Acts 16, as you go on into that 16th chapter, verses 1 through 3, and again at verse 6. And then Paul's second visit to Phrygia is mentioned in Acts 18, 23. Well, since Phrygia's chief cities were Colossae, and Laodicea, many believe that Paul would have preached there during his visits to the region, and certainly that makes sense. But there are some who contend that Paul never visited Colossae. And the reason they base that, uh, the contention they make, uh, is that Colossians 2 and verse 1, Paul writes there, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Well, some, when they read that, have said, well, 
those at Colossae had never seen his face in the flesh. Well, uh, it would, of course, uh, possibly be the case that that's what he's saying, but it, would it not also be possible that even though he established the church there, and then since he had left there after his second visit there, there had been those who'd been converted, who'd become part of the church, who'd never seen Paul's face. I think that's perfectly logical. So it does not, I don't believe, conclusively show that Paul had never been to Colossae. But the point is, it doesn't make any difference who started the church at Colossae. Some say it was Epaphras, who was one of them, as the epistle here will point out, a very faithful servant of God. And it may have been that, Ep uh, may have been that Epaphras started uh, the church. But it makes no difference who began the church. And incidentally, the authenticity and the genuineness of this epistle, the Colossian epistle, has never been seriously questioned. As we said, it was written about A.D. 62 from Rome while Paul was in prison there, uh, signed with his own hand, delivered by Tychicus, along with Onesimus. Remember him? Uh, the runaway slave who left Philemon, who was a resident of Colossae, and Paul was sending him home after Onesimus had been converted. And if you look at Colossians chapter 4 and verse 7, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant of the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. Verse 8, I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, verse 9, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. So, obviously, the epistle was delivered by Tychicus along with Onesimus, who was being sent back, as we learned from Philemon, to his master from whom he had, uh, had uh, uh, run away. But since his runaway, his, his uh, departure, he had been converted and was now returning home as a brother in uh, Christ. As we said, this is one of the four epistles commonly called the prison epistles, the others are Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, and they were written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment, as we said, probably about A.D. 62 or uh, 63. Now, with that as some background, and I do think it is important to uh, produce some introductory material when we are beginning a study of a book. Uh, as um, I've heard it said, a book that's well introduced is half taught, and certainly we haven't I spent a lot of time with an introduction, but in this initial lesson, I think it is good to refresh our minds about some background uh, information before we get into uh, chapter 1. But having done that, we're going to uh, look tonight at the, uh, at the first eight verses uh, of this uh, epistle, and um, we will uh, look first at uh, verses 1 and uh, 2, as you have, I hope, the verse is on the screen, yes. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, a, um, of course, Paul's uh, introductory comment to them as he writes in a very customary way, grace to you and peace. That phrase is used by the Apostle Paul, as you well know, I'm sure, time and, and time again. But before we talk a little bit more about that, go back to the very first statement. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, but notice this, by the will of God. And uh, he makes that, makes that point to obviously call attention to the fact that he was not some self-appointed uh, apostle, but that it was the will of God that 
that enabled the Apostle Paul uh, to become an apostle. Now, when did that take place? It took place uh, after his conversion and the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have often talked about, just to refresh our minds, our, the Lord's appearance to Paul when he was still called Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road did not convert him there, but qualified him there, that appearance did, to become an apostle after he had been converted. His conversion, you remember, took place after he was instructed to go into the city of Damascus, and there it will be told him what he must do. Then Ananias, that disciple, was sent by the Lord himself to Paul at Damascus, and he, of course, then instructed him as to what he was to do to complete his obedience. Remember, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So the conversion of Saul of Tarsus did not take place on the Damascus Road, but it was absolutely essential in order for him to be an apostle for the Lord to have appeared to him because he had never seen the risen Lord. And that was one of the qualifications, you remember, of apostleship was that every apostle had to have been a witness, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Paul, as he would write later in 1 Corinthians 15, said he had seen the Lord, but he saw him as one born out of due time. That is, he's referring to the time that he saw him on the Damascus Road. And it was the will of God expressed through that appearance by Jesus Christ that the apostle Paul become an, uh, an apostle. But he had to be qualified to be an apostle. And to be qualified to be an apostle, he had to have seen the risen Lord. Later in the ninth chapter of Acts, when Ananias went his way upon the instructions of the Lord himself, he laid his hands on Paul, Brother Saul, he called him there, a brother Jew, not a brother in Christ at that time. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, earlier in um, the appearance of the Lord to Ananias, when Ananias uh, basically was uh, <laughs> a little hesitant about going to him because he said, Lord, uh, I've heard, this is verse 13 of Acts 9, from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. This is what Paul is referring to here in Colossians 1 verse 1 when he says, By the will of God. Jesus was telling Ananias, you go to him because I have a purpose for him, I have a mission for him, and once he has become a Christian, he is going to be an ambassador for me. He is going to be an apostle, a genuine apostle by the will of God. And that's the very reference that Paul makes here, by the will of God. You remember that there were those during Paul's work here on earth who questioned very seriously his apostleship. They sought to discount and discard uh, his apostleship. And he had to defend his apostleship on more than one occasion. But here he simply throws this in by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obviously, to remind his readers that I am an apostle, not by my own self-appointment, but I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And everything I am doing, I'm doing by authority of God and Jesus Christ.
And then he mentions Timothy, our brother, he says. And you know, I've mentioned before that we never need to take for granted uh, nor view lightly that term brother, but to always appreciate every time we see that word, every time we hear that word, every time we use that word, the preciousness of that relationship that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can, you can almost uh, uh, feel that affection that Paul had for Timothy in, in this very succinct but powerful reference to him, Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy was Paul's son in the gospel, and he often referred to him in that way because he converted Timothy, and thus he called him his son in the gospel on more than one occasion. But here, Timothy, our brother. And to whom is this epistle addressed? It is addressed to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Two groups of people, right? No, one group, only one group to the saints and faithful brethren, because the saints are faithful brethren and the faithful brethren are saints. There is no difference in terms of uh, two different groups of people here to whom this epistle is being addressed. He is simply using two synonymous expressions to describe the Christians at Colossae. They were Christians, they were disciples, they were saints, they were faithful brethren. And it's not redundant to use the term faithful brethren because to say brother does not necessarily always imply a faithful brother. Uh, there are brethren we have who are brethren, but they're not faithful brethren. There are brethren of, uh, about whom you know, I'm sure, and whom you do know, that tragically tonight, having once been faithful brethren, are not uh, any longer faithful brethren. Are they, still, uh, are they still brethren? Yes, but they are not faithful uh, brethren. Remember, in Paul's letter, second letter to the Thessalonians, after he had um, admonished the church to withdraw fellowship from those who walked disorderly, he said, even after you've done this from a brother, you don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a what? As a brother. He's still a brother, but tragically he has become an unfaithful brother. So it's not redundant to say faithful brethren, because brethren can be unfaithful brethren. But he's writing here to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae and then his characteristic greeting, grace to you and peace, grace and peace. And I have said more than once that I don't believe any man ever walked the earth other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself who appreciated the grace of God more than did the Apostle Paul. He was one who was a persecutor of the church. He was one who was who was consenting to the death, uh, death of Stephen, as you recall. Uh, he was seeking letters from the high priest to go to Damascus to bring back men or women who were of the way, that is, Christians, back to Jerusalem to be persecuted and even killed. And yet, all of that turned around in his conversion. And in 1 Corinthians 15:10, he wrote, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, for I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace, grace, grace. A tremendous emphasis by the Apostle Paul in his writings on grace because he personally appreciated the grace of God and knew what it meant to his salvation. But should we be any less appreciative? We were sinners, we were lost, we were without hope in God and the world before our conversion to Christ, and without the grace of God, that conversion could never have been accomplished. 
because it's the grace of God that brought the plan of salvation into existence, that brought Jesus to this earth to live and to die the sinless death upon Calvary to shed his blood, that God's grace might be extended and that peace might result from the extension of that grace. And grace and peace go together because the grace of God is what enables us to enjoy the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And we enjoy that peace once we've availed ourselves of that grace by obedience to the gospel, which is called the gospel of God's grace. And when we've obeyed it, we enjoy that peace and that unspeakable joy, the peace about which we spoke this morning. It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the only source. God and Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead is the only source of grace and peace. And there can be no true peace without God, the Godhead in our lives. So this is the beginning of this uh, epistle. And then we move to verses 3 and 4 as he expresses thanksgiving. Thanks, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Paul was a man who, who gave a lot of thanks, didn't he? Well, wouldn't you expect that from one who appreciated the grace of God so acutely? Would you not express that thanksgiving for the grace of God, and would you not expect one who appreciated that grace to be one who was, who was constantly giving thanks? And he wrote later in another of the prison epistles in Philippians, in everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. Pray without ceasing. First Thessalonians 5.17 he wrote in that epistle. Paul was a man of prayer, and in that prayer, in that prayer, was always thanksgiving. And here, specifically, he says, praying always for you. It was a perpetual prayer. Not 24-7, obviously. Not a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week prayer, but praying regularly, perpetually, for you brethren, you saints and faithful brethren. And incidentally, we didn't mention this, but saints means just Christians, doesn't it? Not some special class of saints, not someone who's given sainthood after death, uh, as is done, of course, uh, uh, by the Catholic uh, religion. But saints were just simply Christians, and there's nothing in Scripture to indicate anything but the fact that they were saints. And saints comes from a word, that word saints is a word that means set apart for a holy use. That's what you are tonight if you're a Christian you're a saint. You've been set apart for a holy use. And Paul gives thanks for those saints and for these faithful brethren, one in the same group of people. But since we what? Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, again, for the Christians there, heard of your faith. We've often asked this question, or we've asked it before at least a few times, how did, how did Paul hear of their faith? Did they simply send word to him that they had faith? Paul, we've, uh, we want you to know, and uh, Epaphras, we're going to send word by him or by some other messenger that we have faith. No, it was demonstrated, wasn't it? He heard of their faith based upon their actions, based upon their deeds. 
You remember the first Thessalonian letter, and we've studied this epistle recently. He gives thanks to God always for them. Remember, it's a very similar uh, opening to that epistle, the first epistle to the Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for you all, the Thessalonians now, making mention of you in our prayers. Listen to this. Remembering without ceasing, here he says, your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in the sight of our God, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Your work of faith and labor of love to the Thessalonians, he says. Here, he simply says, your faith and your love. But it's the same idea. Their work of faith, their labor of love. In other words, love has to manifest itself by laboring. Faith has to manifest itself by working. And you only hear of faith based upon the deeds that have been done by those who are faithful. Look with me at Matthew chapter 9 for just a moment. And you see a beautiful illustration of the fact that faith that is seen, faith that is heard, has to have associated with it actions. And that faith without actions is not biblical faith. In Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, So he, this is Christ, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus, now look at it, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. When Jesus, what? Saw their faith. Did that mean he had the ability to look into their hearts and see if they had faith? Well, he had that ability, but that's not what this means here. What is he saying? What is the, what is the scripture saying? When he saw their faith, what was he seeing? He was seeing men bringing a paralytic to Jesus who was lying on a bed. He was seeing them demonstrate their faith by their actions. That's exactly what the passage is saying. And it's a beautiful illustration of what faith that pleases God is all about. It is faith that has to act. And so when Paul here writes to the Colossians and says, since we heard of your faith, he's talking about their actions, their faithful actions in the kingdom. And the same is true of their love for all the saints. Because I can tell my fellow saints how much I love them all day long, but until I do something to demonstrate that, how much is that going to uh, benefit uh, my fellow saints? It's like, uh, like the scripture elsewhere says, uh, be warmed and feel. What good, if what good have you done when you uh, simply say to a brother or sister in need, be warmed and filled and go on your merry way? No, these things indicate everything that the Bible consistently teaches, and that is that faith and love have to be seen by actions. But notice then in verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth, of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Now, what do we have? In verse 4, we have faith and love. In verse 5, we have now hope. Faith, hope, love. These three. Remember, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, 
and love. And what about this hope that he now mentions to them? The hope that is what? Laid up for you in heaven. That phrase laid up comes from the same word that we find in Hebrews 9.27 where the apostle writes, is appointed for man to die once and after this the judgment. The word appointed in Hebrews 9.27 is the same word here that's translated laid up. Do you think death is an appointment that's absolutely certain for you unless the Lord comes again? Are you going to die? That's absolutely certain. It's interesting that the same word is used here about the hope that the Christian has. That hope is appointed for you in heaven. That hope is laid up for you in heaven. Just as certain as it is that you're going to die unless the Lord comes again, if you're a faithful child of God, it's just as certain that you have a reward laid up for you in heaven. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that reassuring? As certain as death is, your hope is just as certain as death itself if you are truly a faithful child of God. The hope laid up for you in heaven, that reward that awaits all the faithful, of which you heard before, where? By a direct operation of the Holy Spirit, by a better felt than told experience. No, the hope, the hope that you heard before in the what? The word of the truth of the what? Of the gospel. No question about the fact that it is the word, the all-sufficient, all-powerful word of God that produces faith, that produces love, that produces hope, the great qualities that are mentioned here and elsewhere. And then, in verse 7, as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. You've also learned some things from Epaphras, as we learn some things from one another, and as we encourage one another. Paul brings into this discussion here a dear brother in Christ, calling him a dear fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, because Epaphras, the indication is, from other references, that he was one of them, that is, from Colossae. As you also learn from Ephesus, or Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. But again, it still gets back to the word. Anything Epaphras related to them had as its original source the word of God. But it also points out to us how important to the Apostle Paul faithful fellow servants were. And how important it should be to us to have brothers and sisters in Christ who encourage us as we seek to encourage them, from whom we can learn, from whom we can gain strength. Remember, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24. We need to never take lightly or take for granted the importance of what we can do for each other as all of us feed upon the Word of God and as all of us live that word and encourage one another to do the same. Paul, on more than one occasion, expressed deep appreciation for those who were his fellow servants and what they meant to him and the encouragement that they gave to him. Well, he also adds here in the final verse at which we'll look tonight, who also, 
this is verse 8, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. There was something that Epaphras related to the Apostle Paul while he was a prisoner at Rome about the church at Colossae that was a great encouragement to a man who was suffering, a man who was in some, uh, some adverse circumstances, to say the least, and who had suffered much at this point in time for the gospel of Christ. What an encouragement it was to hear from Epaphras about their love, but notice this, important phrase, in the Spirit, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. What Spirit? The Holy Spirit, which tells us that love has as its origin the teaching of the Word of God. Where do we learn to love God? From the Word. Where do we learn to love Christ? From the Word. John says we love Him because He first loved us. Where do we learn of the love of Christ? The only place you can learn of the love of Christ is in the Word. And we are to love in accordance with or in keeping with the Word, which is equivalent to loving in the Spirit because it's the Spirit who gave us this Word. There's another passage from another of the prison epistles that ties in nicely, I think, to this passage about loving in the Spirit, and that's Philippians 3 and verse 3. There, the same writer, the Apostle Paul says, For we are the circumcision, that is the true circumcision, who worship God, here it is again, in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We worship God in the Spirit. We love in the Spirit. The two are equivalent. We learn how to worship from the Spirit through the Word. We learn how to love from the Spirit through the Word, not through some better felt than told experience, not through some subjective salvation experience that has nothing to do with the Word of God. It again simply calls attention to how vitally important and how completely sufficient is this book the New Testament, the last will and testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And before you can be characterized as one who loves in the Spirit, you're going to have to be obedient to the teaching of the Spirit. And as we close our thoughts tonight in this initial lesson in Colossians, what is it that the Colossians had to do in order to be characterized as those who loved in the Spirit? They had to obey the gospel of Christ. And when we come to Colossians chapter 2, we're going to see Paul review for us there, beginning at verse 11, the very process by which they became obedient to the teaching of the Spirit. I'll tell you now what it is. It is by a belief in Jesus as the Christ that leads you to repent of your sins, to confess him as the Christ, and to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. That's the teaching of the Spirit for the one who's outside of Christ. And if you haven't obeyed the gospel, you are outside of Christ. We plead with you to obey it tonight. If you need to come home to your first love, need the prayers of brothers and sisters to pray with you and for you to a God who loves you and who will forgive you of any sin that needs to be confessed in that public way, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you.